I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. In today's reading, we'll be looking at Revelation chapters 1 through 3. First of all, let's get an overview of the book of Revelation. Revelation was written by John on Patmos, the result of a vision around 95 AD. It is indeed the last book written. According to the tradition of the early church writer Eusebius, John was on the island as a result of being exiled there by the Roman emperor. All we know about it from the scriptures found in verse 9, where John writes, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. There wasn't much to do on the island there except, of course, commune with God. It's in this setting that John receives the words of the book of Revelation. We find the introduction to the rest of the prophecy found in Revelation chapter 1, where we'll begin reading with verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they to hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, and to him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God, and his Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks one likened to the Son of Man clothed with the garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. 
and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive for evermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars and the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest, are the seven churches. So in this passage, John introduces in verses 1-3 through three the purpose for writing down this prophecy. He then names his initial audience. These are the seven churches in Asia. That was a Roman province embracing the greater part of Western Asia Minor. Today, these locations are found in modern-day Turkey. Patmos, the island from which John is writing, is off the coast. The order of the churches is always listed the same. I've got a map listed on BibleTrack.org on today's reading, and you'll notice from that map that uh, when John mentions the churches, he always orders them in clockwise fashion from the nearest one to Patmos, which is Ephesus, around and back down toward Patmos. The testimony that John is recording is that of Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 2. John records what he saw from the angel in verse 2. Here's a paraphrase of verse 3 that captures the essence of the Greek usage of the three present active participles used in that verse. So listen closely. Blessed are the ones reading and the ones hearing the words of the prophecy and the ones guarding in the same having been written. For the time is near. John tells us, as believers, how we are to regard the book of Revelation. Read, hear, and guard its words. Verse 5 gives us the following facts about Jesus Christ. First of all, that he's faithful. He's the faithful witness. Secondly, that he's the first begotten of the dead. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. That's our Jesus, the first begotten of the dead. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15.23, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ in his coming. So, there again, we have evidence in Scripture that Jesus is to be regarded as the first begotten of the dead. Finally, we have Paul actually writing in Romans 8.29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So John is not introducing a new concept right here. It's one that uh, is found all through the New Testament with regarding the identity and the purpose of Jesus Christ, the firstborn, the first begotten of the dead. We also see in verse 5 here that Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth. The Greek word for prince there is archon, meaning ruler. This is obviously another reference to a passage in the Old Testament, Psalm 89. Psalm 89, 27, by the way, says, Also I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. Well, there's another reference to firstborn. And you can see that when he uses the word ruler right here, that he's actually drawing from Psalm chapter 89. 
We see in that verse 5 that Jesus loved us and that also Jesus washed us from our sins in his own blood. This, of course, is speaking of our spiritual rebirth. Let's not miss the declaration of verse 6 of the position before God of all believers. It says, and hath made us, believers, kings and priests unto God and his Father. We also see this doctrine of the priesthood of believers in 1 Peter 2, 9. In that passage it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. This being the case, those in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, skipping all the way down to the end of Revelation, when it says, Who shall reign with him a thousand years, certainly must be a reference to all believers. Verse 7 is often misunderstood when it says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Well, that's not the rapture of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, and also mentioned again in 1 Corinthians 15, 51-58. That, in fact, is the second coming of Jesus Christ that we find in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11-21. through well, yes, I'm aware that believers meet the Lord in the clouds in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. But all the criteria found in this verse are not met until the Battle of Armageddon. Now, if you want to skip ahead and read some more detail regarding this, look at my notes on Bible Track on Revelation chapter 6 for some additional clarification. It's obvious that Jesus Christ himself is giving John this prophecy from the description seen here in verses 11 through 18. Let me read to you from Daniel chapter 7 verses 9 and 10, and you notice the similarity. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. We see a three-point outline of the prophecy in verse 19. It says, Write the things which thou hast seen, number one, and the things which are, number two, and the things which shall be hereafter, number three. So in addition to what John has seen in verses 1 through 18, he's told to write about the things which are. This is a reference to the spiritual situation in the seven churches listed in Asia Minor in John's day. We'll see those situations specifically when we get to chapters 2 and 3. The future, the things which shall be hereafter, those begin in Revelation chapter 4 and they continue all the way to the end of the book. The seven stars and the seven candlesticks are identified in verse 20. These seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. References will be made to these identifiers in chapters 2 and 3. The Greek word for angel there is angelos, which is also frequently translated messenger. Let's give an introduction before we read chapters 2 and 3 to these two chapters. First of all, let me say that there's no prophecy in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. 
Now, I know that you may have been taught that there is prophecy in those two chapters, but there's not. John's vision contains instructions for these seven churches in Asia Minor. These were real churches in that day. There are some teachers, or perhaps I should say many teachers, who have taken these seven churches to be church-age prophecy. Each of the seven churches, they say, mentioned, represent a period of time beginning in the first century that go all the way down to our current day. In this extra-scriptural systematic assignment of Asia Minor churches to periods of church history, we are considered to be living in the Laodicean church age, now in the 21st century. You've heard that analogy, I'm sure, many times before. Well, here's the problem with that teaching. There's nothing in this passage or any other to suggest that these churches uh, are the exhortations to be taken as anything more than exhortations to those actual seven churches in Asia Minor. So I'm convinced that our lesson here is to look at the attributes of these churches and identify the ones God does and does not honor, and likewise then to heed them. Remember, these are churches, local assemblies being referenced here. I simply do not see any scriptural basis whatsoever to identify these two chapters as an analogous message outlining the characteristics of seven ages of church history. Our first visit is to the church of Ephesus found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Reading verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and then thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience for my name's sake, hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. With regard to the church of Ephesus, Paul, the Apostle Paul, had previously visited there on his second missionary journey, back in Acts chapter 18, verses 19 to 21. Then again he visited on his third missionary journey in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10, in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. We see in those passages that Paul remained there for two years preaching in the synagogue. He preached in the school of Tyrannus in Acts chapter 19, verse 9, and in private houses we see in Acts chapter 20, verse 20. Diana's temple was there, making it a pagan religious center for all of Asia. The Ephesians are commended for their patience, perseverance, and tolerance for false teachers. Their problem, though, is having left their first love. It would appear that they had lost sight of their purpose and love for Christ and were merely going through the actions, proper actions, but with improper motivation. The removal of a lampstand in these two chapters is symbolic of a church becoming dead. It has no reference whatsoever to the salvation of individual believers. So here's John's admonition to them in verse 5. 
Remember what the old days were like and return to those days. Repent, the Greek word metanoeo, means to change one's mind or attitude. Well, these Ephesians needed an attitude adjustment. Well, now, who are these Nicolaitans? Several theories have been offered regarding who they are. Many scholars believe that they were a Gnostic group originally founded by a man named Nicholas. But we really have no direct evidence to validate this. It is assumed that they were a sect who preached false doctrine. Whoever they are, well, let's just stay away from them. Verse 7 is interesting. Let's define to whom him that overcometh refers. John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? So, John uses this phrase to describe believers. The tree of life in that verse is a reference, first of all, to the one that was located in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. After Adam's sin, God drove them out of the Garden of Eden because, according to Genesis 3.22, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. The words of Genesis 3.22. The fruit of that tree of life was apparently the means whereby God had granted them eternal life. We see in Revelation chapter 22 that after the creation of the new earth takes place, there will once again exist the tree of life. Revelation 22 verse 2 says that it will exist there for the healing of the nations. Therefore, access to the tree of life guarantees eternal life. Verse 8 begins talk of the church there at Smyrna. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Smyrna was a modern city, had wide paved roads along with Roman and pagan temples. It was a center for medicine and science. The church there was probably founded while Paul was in and around Ephesus for approximately two years, beginning around 57 AD. That was while he was on his third missionary journey. In Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 10, Acts chapter 20, verse 31. Smyrna was close to Ephesus. There's no direct mention of them in Paul's third missionary journey, but he would have passed through on his way north. The roads went through Smyrna. There are only two churches in this list of seven about which nothing critical is said. Well, this is the first one. Commendations for their works and suffering can be inferred here in verse 9. Apparently, there were additional people in Smyrna representing themselves as Jewish converts to Christianity, but were doing so falsely. No additional information is available here on that issue. In verse 10, the devil, the Greek word diabolos, means slanderer, but when used with a definite article as it is here, usually means Satan himself. The tribulation ten days, well, that's a mystery. 
Maybe it's a figure of speech. We see that death as a martyr brings a crown of life. Tough times are ahead for these people, but they are commended for their faithfulness. John uses the term overcomers here. In his first epistle, he defined overcomers as believers. The second death is described by John in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, where he says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The next six verses, beginning with verse 12, describe the church at Pergamos. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Pergamus was about fifteen miles inland, and hosted three temples dedicated to Roman emperors where they were worshipped as gods. One of those temples was to Augustus Caesar. Pergamus was a religious center for that region. The imperial cult was a test of loyalty to Rome. Jews had integrated into Roman society there. Well, these folks have been faithful to the name of Christ, but that's about it on the good side. Satan's seat here might be a reference to the three temples built to Roman emperors located in Pergamus. Despite being a religious center, they remained firm for Christ and became marked as not loyal to Rome. An unknown martyr, Antipas, was slain there. Verse 14 resurrects some Old Testament memories. You recall that Balaam devised a plan whereby the daughters of the Moabites would seduce the Israelite men and lead them to sacrifice to their god, Baal Peor, in Numbers chapter 25. For more information on that, you may want to take a look at 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 15 and 16. And uh, Jude, verse 11, both refer back to this Numbers chapter 25 incident. By the way, it's worth reading to get a greater insight, Numbers chapter 22 through 25. On BibleTrack.org, I've got a commentary written with regard to uh, Balak and Balaam. Some things about these two men that you may not really remember until you read about them. It would appear that there were those in the church there who tempted the believers with sinful practices in the very same fashion as did Balaam, and thus the comparison. The Nicolaitans get dis dishonorable mention here once again, just as they did regarding the church at Ephesus. There seemed to be a good bit of deviant doctrine inside the church, from which they must repent. In verse 16, we see the word repent again. It's metanaeo, as I said before, means to change one's mind or attitude. 
In verse 17, the manna is a reference to the Old Testament wilderness wanderings. Look at Exodus chapter 16. The white stone, well, that's a mystery. We don't know exactly what that white stone is. Verse 18 brings us to a discussion of the church at Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes likened to a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depth of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none of the burden. But with that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my words unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall be they, they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." Thyatira was a city of craftsmen and merchants. Lydia, a convert of Paul in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15, well, she was a seller of purple fabric there. We are told from secular sources that many trade guilds operated there in Thyatira. The city hosted a major cult of Apollo, the son of Zeus. He was the deity associated with prophecy and with the sun. These folks are commended in verse 19 for their works and charity and service and faith and thy patience. However, they had a problem, big problem. Jezebel may not have been her actual name. It could have been the tag given her by Christ in this passage because of her dastardly deeds. My rule of thumb has always been this. Being called Jezebel is never, 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 never a compliment. She'd obviously corrupted the church with false teaching, accompanied apparently with a teaching of cultic immorality. In verses 21 through 24, we see that. In addition to the words of this passage, that notion is based upon the showdown between Elijah, Jezebel, and her band of heathen prophets of Baal, seen back in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. This church gets a one-sentence commendation in verse 19. But it's all downhill from there. Here's the bottom line. If they don't repent, severe judgment is on the way. There's a reference to ruling in verse 26. Apparently saints, as I mentioned before, will rule over the nations with Christ, beginning with the millennium and thereafter. Faithfulness here is rewarded with responsibility during the millennium over Gentile nations. We don't have any additional details regarding the morning star we see in verse 28. That brings us to chapter 3. The first six verses describe the church at Sardis. 
And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast perceived and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Well, here's what we know about Sardis from history. It was a very old city well fortified on top of a mountain. It had been conquered by the Persians in the 6th century B.C. and again by the Greeks in the 3rd century B.C. This modern city maintained a temple to the goddess Artemis. Sardis also had a well-established Jewish population. Of all the seven churches, this one receives the most criticism. Have you ever been to a church and said, Man, this church is dead. Well, that's the description here of Sardis. The message to this congregation is, wake up. There were a few in the church who were still perky, as we see in verse 4. So let the revival form around these people. Again, the word repent, metanaeo, means to change one's mind or attitude. That's the New Testament definition of the Greek word metanaeo. Incidentally, verse 5 has been abused by those who teach that salvation is temporary, only effective as long as one is actively serving God. They abuse this verse with very poor deductive reasoning in assuming that the inverse is true, that if one does not overcome, his name will be blotted out of the book of life. Ironically, verse 5 actually provides a very strong case for the security of the believer, and it's not intended as a threat at all, and not in any way. Those referenced overcame to salvation. They shall be clothed in white raiment, and thus they are eternally secure. That's the exact context in which John uses this very same term in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. In that passage, he says, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So John uses this phrase to describe believers. That brings us to the church at Philadelphia, beginning with chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. 
Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Philadelphia was located about 90 miles inland on the Hermes River. It's a river that connected to the Mediterranean. It was often referred to as Little Athens because of the magnificent buildings and pagan temples located there in the city. It had a significant population of Jews who maintained a synagogue there. Only this church and Smyrna have no indictments against them. Apparently they were being attacked by those impostors mentioned in verse 9. So these Philadelphians are being admonished here, just hang on, your day's coming. There's an interesting reference in verse 7 regarding the opening and closing. In that verse, Jesus is described as the holy and true. Here's a quote from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulders, so he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. In Hezekiah's reign, Shebna was replaced by Eliakim, because Shebna's interests were not loyal to the security of Jerusalem against the Assyrians. Shebna was not holy and true. Though spiritually beaten down, the folks in Philadelphia remained faithful and true. According to John's definition in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, overcomers are believers. We discussed that a little bit earlier. All of the details regarding the new Jerusalem are found in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Finally, the last church that we discuss and that we see written about here is found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. It's the church at Laodicea. Verse 14, And the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as also I overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Well, here are the Laodiceans, and incidentally you may have noticed there's not a single positive comment about these people. There's kind of an interesting play on words concerning these Laodiceans. First of all, they piped their water through enclosed conduits for several miles to arrive with water to the city. As a result, their water was lukewarm. These people understood lukewarm, 
Thus their works are compared to lukewarm water. Not that good, not that bad, just, you know, lukewarm. So is God happy with a lukewarm church? Well, obviously not, according to verse 16. However, they thought they were okay, as we see in verse 17, but not so. We see that clearly in verse 18. An interesting linkage is made in that verse regarding the trade resources of the city of Laodicea. It was a banking center whose banks even Cicero recommended for exchanging money. It manufactured clothing and wool carpets made from the glossy black wool of sheep that were raised locally. It also had a medical school and produced a popular eye ointment made from pulverized rock that was found in the area. Now look at verse 18 in that context. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Well, that kind of puts it all in perspective when you realize the trade these people were in. It's kind of interesting stuff, wouldn't you say? The amen of verse 14 is a transliteration of the Greek word meaning trustworthy. We also see the eternal presence of Jesus emphasized just as it was by John in John chapter 1, verse, verses 1 and 14. Notice the reference to the chastisement in verse 19. Why? Well, it's because Jesus loves them. Loves them and us. That will indicate that these people who are described as neither cold nor hot, that these folks were in fact believers. Now, God chastens believers, according to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. That verse says, those verses rather say, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Lord chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. That phrase, as many as I love, establishes that these are lukewarm believers being addressed in this passage. And those believers are, by the way, encouraged to repent. Again, the word metanoia is used here, means to change one's mind or attitude. So we're talking about believers changing their mind or attitude. An appeal is made in verse 20 for the local assembly to invite Christ back in. Works done in the church by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit are not lukewarm. They are hot. Let's closely look at Revelation chapter 3 verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Some use this verse as a call to personal salvation. For personal salvation, the knocking on the door metaphor just makes a nice presentation when presenting the gospel message. Incidentally, the any man, King James reference there, is simply a translation of the Greek word tis. It means uh, a certain one, and it's not really gender specific. This verse, though technically directed to individual Laodiceans to once again establish fellowship with Christ, does make a rather nice salvation invitation. However, I suppose that does do a bit of injustice to the context here. According to John's definition, the one that he gave in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, we've already looked at that a couple of times in the other churches, 
These overcomers of verse 21 are believers. After the rapture of the church indicated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we are told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 17, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Of course, we as believers, anyone who's ever received Christ as Savior, will be ruling with Jesus Christ. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walker.